0: Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneier Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasnyansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg.
1: We are middle of chapter 21, page 284. The Torah says Hashem creates the world with the ten utterances. What does it mean? Why does the Torah use the analogy of speech? Because speech is a beautiful analogy to help us understand how the world is insignificant in relationship to Hashem as if it doesn't exist. And therefore creation is a non-being, a a non-entity, and that creation itself is a non-entity. Not only... That from God's point of view, God is so infinite, so God transcends creation. So what is creation? Comparison to the ocean, what is a drop in the ocean? drop in the ocean is insignificant. When the sun is shining, who even pays attention to a small little candle? It's insignificant. What does the small candle add? What light could the small candle add to the the intense, powerful sun? So it's insignificant. He says, no, that's not what he's explaining. He's not coming to explain that in comparison to God, God transcends everything that's finite and limited, and therefore this entire world is insignificant to God. He's coming to explain something much deeper than that. He's explaining that even, even the world itself, being itself, what is its true nature? Its true nature is... And its origin, its source, its true nature is a state of non-being. Of non- non-existence. No ego, no existence. This is where the analogy of speech comes to play. Because Hashem created the world through the ten utterances. Just like when a human being a human being speaks. Where do, these ten, where do these words come from? Letters, words that you formulate in your mind, that you're thinking with. They come from you. You're the source. It's your words. But where did they come from? These words didn't just pop out of nowhere. I mean, these words came from within you. In other words, these words were there. Within you, within the source. But while these very same words that you're presently speaking, while these very same words, before you thought about it, and before they emerged, And before they surfaced, and before you even had words, where were these words? Within you. Within you, these words were in a state of non-being, of non-existence. The very same words did not exist. They were there, they come from you. But while they're within you, while they're within the source, in the raw emotion, or the raw experience, or the raw concept, the raw understanding, raw intellectual understanding... Especially if you go deeper, the subconscious, and you go to the essence of the soul, the words are there, but they're in a state of non-being. Elsewhere, Alter Rebbe uses the analogy of light. Where does light come? Light comes from the sun. But when the light itself was within the sun, within its source, it was in a state of non-being, non-entity. It was unified with the source. That there's nothing else but the source. The letters themselves don't feel themselves. All they feel is all that exists is the source. There is nothing else. Then out of the source emerges these words and letters with which you think and you articulate and you communicate. This is the analogy that he's using to help us understand how the world, everything that exists is absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God. Because everything that exists is nothing other, as he explained, as we already learned in the second part of the tanya, is nothing other than the divine words and letters. Hashem creates and sustains and continuously creates and recreates the world, constantly creates the world through the ten utterances. So everything that exists has a Hebrew name, has a Hebrew letter, which is the channel of the divine energy that's constantly creating and bringing the stone into existence, and ear into existence, and the amoeba and every atom. Everything is constantly being recreated into existence. So, what is existence? Existence is nothing other than the divine words and divine energy. That's the source of all existence. But the divine words, when these divine words were within the source, within God himself, they're in a state of non-being, of non-existence, a non-entity. All that they feel is the divine existence. There's nothing else. The divine essence. There's nothing else but the divine essence. So the very being itself, its true state is, in its root, in its source, its true state is a state of non-being. So everything that exists in this world, everything that exists in this world, When it's within the source, the divine letters and divine words that create everything, when they are within the source, they are in a state of non-being, of non existence So the natural state of everything that really exists is an egoless state. There is no ego, there is no I, there is no separation, there is no distinction, totally unified in the absolute unity of God. All there is is God, there is nothing else. And that's why we say in Davening, Hashem Machod, God is one. God was alone before He created the world, as we spell it out immediately after the Shema, in the introduction to the morning prayer. And God is alone after He created the world. Because the truth is, the true nature of everything is that nothing really exists except the nature of Hashem. Everything by nature exists in a state of non-being, of non-ego, of non-entity. It's a non-entity. All there is is the source. There is nothing else. It's absolutely unified within the source. So all there is is the source. There is nothing else. All there is is God. There's nothing separate from God. There's nothing outside of God. There's nothing independent of God. There's nothing, not only independent of God, there's nothing dependent on God. There's nothing but God. Period. Because everything, its very being, its true nature is a state of non-being, and non-existence, non e So there is no I. So it's not only that the sun versus the little candle. So what does the little candle add to the great sun? So it's insignificant. You don't pay attention. It's insignificant. But then you have a sun and you have this little candle. You can't say that nothing changed. Before all you had was a sun. Now you have the sun and you also have this little candle. Before you had the ocean. Now you had an ocean plus a little a drop. Yes, it's only a drop. You don't pay attention. It's significant. But you can't say nothing changed. Here we're saying nothing changed. God was alone before he created the world and after he created this entire universe at this very moment, during creation, while we're here, and the whole activity, the whole activity of life, and not only material life, spiritual life, higher realms of consciousness, all of this doesn't change anything. doesn't change anything, even one iota. God was alone before he created the world and he's alone after you how's it possible what do you mean before God was alone now there's us there's God and there's us yes we're insignificant in comparison to God we're, but how can you say nothing changed the answer is no. nothing changed because what is our true nature our true nature is what is our being existence it's nothing other than the divine words and letters God's speech we're God's communication. And the speech, when you take the speech and its source, the speech is in a state of non-being. All there is is the source. There is no letters. There are no letters. There are no words. All there is is the source. So, what is our true nature? Our true nature is a state of non-being, non-existence. But you can ask. That's all beautiful. But that's before we were created. When a person speaks, before you speak, before you think, before the words emerge within your thought, before you have the words and you articulate the words and you sense the words, yes, then you were in a state, a non-verbal state. Then these very same words were in a state, in a non-verbal state, in a state of non-being, non-existence. They were, they were unified within their source. All there was was the source. They were there, but they were totally one with the source. There's nothing other than the source, and not separate from the source, nothing other than the source. But that's before a person speaks. But after a person speaks... Then you can't say that. Because when a person speaks, the words have a life of its own. You can't take it back. The words are independent. Now the words, you have words, you sense the words, there's something, you can't say it's nothing. So this is where the analogy breaks down. Because God's speech is not like our speech. That's what we started learning last week. God's speech is not like our speech. Just like God's thoughts is not like our thoughts. God's speech is not like our speech. Because when we speak, the words have a life of their own. The words leave us. There is an outside reality. But when God speaks, he has no one to speak to. There's no one outside of God. There's no space empty of God. So the words never leave God. So, therefore, to God, the words are always in the state of, like by us within the human being, like the words are within the source before we speak. Just like the words and letters are within the source. So when God speaks, his speech never leaves him. So God's speech is like our speech before we speak. So when God speaks, even after he speaks, it's like before he speaks. Just like before he speaks, where are those words? Where are those letters? And everything that exists is nothing other than, this entire substance is nothing other than the words and letters of God. And based on the different shapes of the words and letters, and the different channeling of the energy, and different combination of the words and letters, you end up with a whole variety of, of existence. But it's nothing other than the words and letters. So when these words and letters were within God, before God spoke, they were absolutely unified in the absolute unity of God. Well, after God speaks, it's like before He speaks. That's the difference between human speech and God, divine speech. There is a, by human speech, there's a difference before we speak, before we think, and after we think, and after we speak. Before we think, there are no words, there are no letters. That, those very same words that later on emerge when we think and we speak, those very words were there before. But when they were in a state of non-being, of non-existence, non-entity, totally unified within their source. But when we speak, then the words emerge, and the words have a life of their own. But God's speech and God's thoughts are not like our thoughts and our speech. When God speaks and God thinks, even after He speaks, it's exactly like before He speaks. So just like before we speak, the words are unified with the source... So too God, even after He speaks, His speech is unified, remains unified within the source. Absolutely unified within God. In the unity of God. So therefore, when the words are within the source, they are in a state of non-being and non-existence. Therefore, even after God creates us and creates the world and the whole bureaucracy of the whole universe, heaven and earth, our essential nature is, we are in a state of non-being and non-existence. That is who we are. That is our nature. That is our true state of being. Our true state of being is, we're in a state of non-being and non-existence. That's the higher level of unity. Ilah. <inaudible> the Zohar says there's two types of unity. There's a lower level of unity. and there's a low, higher level of unity. The lower level of unity is the understanding that everything that's created is created with the divine energy. So, therefore, nothing really exists independently. We are dependent, entirely dependent on the divine energy and divine speech is constantly creating us, which helps us understand that we're not independent beings. We are dependent beings. And, therefore, we are insignificant in comparison to our source. or something from nothing. But nevertheless, you can't say that there is no change before you create the world and after you create the world. There is a change. Before you speak and after you speak. Before you speak, there aren't words, there aren't letters. Now when you speak, there's words, there's letters. So yes, we're nothing other than the divine energy. We're not an independent being, but we are a dependent beings. We are like the light of the sun outside the sun. We are dependent beings, but we are a being. You can't say we're nothing. You can't say that nothing changes. Before, God didn't speak, and now he spoke. But here, he's discussing the higher level of unity. The higher level of unity of God is that nothing exists besides God. Not only there's no independent being besides God, but there is nothing, period, besides God. In the Torah, we find two expressions. One expression is, Ein oid There's nothing independent of God. And there's another expression in the Torah, Ein oid, period. There is nothing but God. What's the difference? When you say "ein oid mo vada oi there's nothing independent besides God. But there is a dependent reality that's totally dependent on God. That God has to constantly sustain and create and animate. But He's speaking and communicating and bringing us into existence. So you can't say that we're absolutely nothing. That nothing changed. What do you mean? Before God didn't speak. Now He spoke and brought us into existence. Then there's a deeper level, a higher level of unity. The higher level of unity, is, is the Torah expresses by saying, Ein oy, there is nothing but God, period. You are alone before you created the world. You are alone and you are exactly the same. Exactly, this. nothing changed. You are exactly alone now, even after you create, during your creation. You are alone, you remain alone. Nothing changed, absolutely nothing changed. How is that possible? Before God spoke and now. Before he spoke and after he spoke. There's a difference. Before he spoke, we weren't here. And after he spoke, we're here. And the answer is, there's no difference. Because by God, after he speaks, it's like before he speaks. So just like before he speaks, where were those words and letters with which God speaks before he spoke? Within God. Absolutely unified within the absolute (laughs) unity of God. Well, there's no space empty of God. The words never leave God. There's no place, there's no one to speak to. There's no one outside of God. So when God speaks, even after He speaks, while He's speaking, He's speaking all the time. This moment He's speaking to bring us into existence. While He speaks, it's as if before He spoke. Nothing changed. So those very same words and letters, which is really the substance of everything that exists, the Hebrew names and the letters and divine energy, those very same energies and words and letters are like before He spoke within the source, swallowed up within the source, unified within the source, absolutely unified within the, the absolute universe. unity of God. So therefore, our very core and essence, our very being is really in a state of non-being, of non-existence, no ego. There's nothing but God. Now, this, of course, blows your mind away. It's totally counterintuitive. <laughs> it's How can we conceive and perceive that we... Are in a state of non-being and non-existence, and there's absolutely no ego, and and we are unified within the unity of God, and everything that exists is really, truly unified within the unity of God, and that's the way God sees it. God sees the truth. There is nothing, no change. There's no difference before, before and after, or after. There's nothing. We don't perceive it, but from God's point of view, that's the true perspective. Nothing changed. God is alone. All along. There's nothing. Nothing exists. Not that the world is an illusion. Of course, the world is, God is speaking in this very moment and bringing the world into existence. But when God speaks, after He speaks, it's like before He speaks. So those very words and letters that form the speech, those very words and letters are in a state like they were before the speech. Just like by a human being. When a person speaks, where are those words and letters before you speak? The words and letters come from you. but They were there. But they were in a state of non-being and non-existence, a non-entity. So after God speaks, it's exactly like before He speaks. The words never leave Him; They don't have a life of their own. They're still within the source. So even after God speaks and creates, we're still within the source. We never left God. And there's nothing but the source. There's nothing but God. So a Jew who has a piece of the divine essence is able to perceive this truth He's able to perceive this reality, to see this world and existence from God's point of view. That we are essentially in a state of non-being and non-existence. Our whole essence is nothing other than God. There is nothing other than God. I
0: mean,
1: this is... This could blow your mind. This is a totally revolutionary concept that ever was one. This is the foundation of Judaism. This is the whole foundation. This is the fountain of Yiddishkeit. This is the fountain the Mesir's nefesh, the self-sacrifice. This is why a Jew is ready to give up everything, make the ultimate sacrifice, ready to give up his whole being for God. Without any hesitation. It takes over your whole your whole being, your whole reality. It doesn't leave any part of you, doesn't leave any part of you outside of the equation because it's a total absolute reality that we are absolutely nullified and we're absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God it's a total reality and it touches our very being it sh- shakes us to the core it touches the very essence of being itself existence to be or not to be Do we exist we don't exist he says, Kula kamek lachashiv." It says, if. it doesn't say we don't exist. That we're an illusion. God forbid to say we're an illusion, like the Eastern mystics say. This is not a Maya. It's no illusion. Torah says that we are real. God creates us. He speaks and we came into being. We come into being. But at the same time, God's speech is not like our speech. See, even after God speaks, it's exactly like before he spoke. We were those words and letters before he spoke totally swallowed up within God. One with God. Unified with God. There's nothing but God. You you can't even find the letters. The letters can't even find themselves. There are no letters. They don't even feel themselves. All there is is the the source. The raw experience, the emotion, the idea, the subconscious, the essence of the person. Well, even after God speaks and he's bringing us into existence and he's speaking at this very moment, nothing changes. We are in a state of non being And therefore, the analogy of a body and a soul is not a good analogy. Classical, the classical religious understanding of God is that just like a person has a soul, a person knows when you think of yourself, you're not thinking of your body, you're thinking of your soul. You're more certain of your soul than anything in the world that you can taste, touch, smell, you can experience through the five senses. When you wake up in the morning, you don't have to see yourself in the mirror to know that you're there. You don't have to hear yourself sing in the shower to know that you're there. You don't have to touch yourself to know the other. You feel, you wake up, I am. Who who? I? Well, who's that I? Who's that, that? Me. Who is me? Who is I? It's nothing tangible. It's not your hands, your fingers. It's 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 the intangible, your soul. You're more certain of that. That's how we experience ourselves from the inside out. More certain of that than anything external, anything you can taste smell. And we are the microcosms, and the microcosms you can extrapolate, the same is true with the world. The world is a huge body, and God is the soul of the world. Just like the body without the soul is a corpse. quickly disintegrates. You don't lift up a pinky. It's not the finger that moves. It's your soul that moves. So too, even though you don't see your soul, you've never seen your soul, you've never heard your soul, but your soul, you're more certain of your soul than anything in the world you can hear or see. That's why the doctor has to see a symptom to know that something is wrong. The patient doesn't need any symptoms. The patient just knows from the inside. You just feel, you don't feel right. Something is wrong. Way before symptoms show up. And the doctors could even begin to diagnose it. This patient knows. Because that's how we experience reality from the inside out. So, two, in the macrocosm, that God is the soul of the world, the world is the body, but nothing, no one lifts a pinky in this world without Hashem. Not only Hashem creates the world, He sustains the world, He animates the world, He directs the world, He's in control of the world. No one lifts a pinky in this world without the soul. If something is happening financially, something is happening medically, it's all, everything comes from the soul. That's just the symptom, the material, the body is just the symptom. That's the classical understanding of religion. But that's not the Jewish understanding of it. Because the body-soul, there's a body-soul connection. There's a mind-body connection. And it works both ways. It works both ways. Not only, of course, obviously the body is affected by the soul. The body is almost a readout of the soul. When a person is depressed, the person is angry, it leads to illness. Most illnesses could be traced to the soul. It's just a, a materialization of what's going on spiritually. As the Zohar says, a lot of illnesses is just, is just emotional, has emo- have an emotional source. Um, because you can't split between body and soul, mind-body connection. So that's obvious that the soul has an impact on the body. But it even works the reverse. The body has an impact on the soul. As the great Rabbi Dovber Magid of Meshich once said, he said, a small hole in the body creates a big hole in the soul. If your body is not healthy, it affects your soul as well. Your soul is affected by the body. The soul can't just leave the body. The soul is affected by the body. The soul is connected to the body till 120 years. You know, the soul can't just... It's not like a suit. You take off the suit and, you know, you put it back on. The soul is connected to the body. It's affected by the body. And it works both ways. That's where the analogy breaks down. God is not like that. God is not affected by the world. Because God is totally beyond even while God is speaking and even while he's creating the world even while he's bringing everything into existence and he's speaking and communicating and down to the world every letter and every word at the same time, simultaneously the world is in a state of non-being it's exactly like before God spoke these very same words, these very same letters are totally unified within God and the letters can't even find themselves and all there is is God, there is nothing else so therefore God is totally unaffected by the world remains totally transcendent at the same time that it's creating the world it remains totally unaffected by the world because the world doesn't exist it's a non-entity it has no significance it's not like the body the lower level of unity is like the body is totally nullified to the soul so much so that the body is egoless the body doesn't even sense itself a healthy body you don't even sense yourself that's that's what we call the lower level of unity. When A person reaches a level and he becomes he, lo, he becomes he rises above his egotism and he senses that he's like a body to the god who is the soul. And he becomes spiritual and he becomes mystical and he becomes religious. That's what we call a lower level of unity. But there's still an entity. The body is an entity. The body is a vehicle for the soul. The body is an expression of the soul. The body can capture the soul, could express the soul. So the body has some relationship with the soul and it's a two-way street. The body impacts the soul just like the soul impacts the body. So the body is something, you can't say that in comparison to the soul, the body is a non-entity. It doesn't exist. Real? What do you mean the body doesn't exist? Of course the body exists, even in comparison to the soul. Because the soul is there to animate the body. And the body could receive that energy, and and it's a meaningful it's a meaningful event that the body receives that, receives that energy. So the body has an entity. The body is something, even a relationship to the soul. So yes, the body does no, is ego is is nullified. There is no ego. It's totally nullified. It's one with the soul. It merges with the soul. But you can't say it doesn't exist in comparison to the soul. No one's going to say the body doesn't exist. But by God we're saying that it's as if the world doesn't exist. You are alone before you created the world and you are alone after you created the world. There is no body. All there is is God. Ein oid. There's nothing else. Ein oid. Movade means there's nothing independent of God. Just like the body can't exist without the soul. It turns into a corpse and quickly disintegrates. But by God it's not so. With God it's ein oid. There is nothing else. There is no body. All there is is God. How can you say there's nobody? What do you mean there's nobody? God is speaking and communicating and creating us, and we exist and we're here. What do you mean all there is is God? Nothing changed. You were alone before you created the world, and you're exactly the same alone after you created the world. And that's what he's explaining in this chapter, in these two chapters, because when God speaks, even after He speaks, it's like before He speaks. So just like in a human being, the words that we speak, that we think with. Those words existed within us. They didn't come from thin air. They came from within us. Where were those words before we spoke? Before we thought? Those words were there, but they were in a state of non-being and non-existence. But then we speak. And the words emerge. And the words have an entity. And the words have a being. And you communicate it. And they have a life of their own. You can't take it back. But with God, after He speaks and after He thinks, it's exactly the same like before He spoke. While he's speaking and after he's speaking, the words remain totally unified within the source. They remain in the state of non-being, non-existence. And therefore, our very nature, the nature of everything that exists, of the and anything that exists, its true nature is a nature of absolute, of non-being, of non-existence. As if we don't exist. All there is is God. There is nothing else but God. So all there is is God. We're not even like a body to the soul. All there is is God. There's nothing else. This is, this is unique to the Jewish people. This is what we call Jewish faith. This is what characterizes the Jewish soul, the Jewish neshama. This understanding, this perception, this truth that we're not even like a body to the soul, that we are, even after we're created, we are in a state of non-being and non-existence and all there is is God. Truly. So, this is something that no one in the universe could possibly appreciate. How is it possible? Because by definition, we exist. The moment we're thinking, and we're meditating, and we're having a religious experience, this mystical, spiritual experience, we already exist. And that's a meaningful event. Just being in a meditative mode, and just being in a spiritual mode, we already exist. So how could you say that there's nothing but God? What do you mean there's nothing but God? It's a, it's a paradox. It's, it's something that's impossible for us to grasp. And the only reason the Jew is able to grasp us is not because of anything that we've done, but because God gave us a piece of himself. So therefore, we taste life, we experience life, From his point of view, from God's point of view, from the inside out. And it's a 180 degree different perspective. From our point of view, the highest level we can reach is we become like a body to God who's a soul. And we lead a meaningful existence, a purposeful existence, a spiritual existence, an intense existence, a meaningful, a deep existence, an inspiring existence. But to say there is no existence, all there is is God, it's impossible. And it's no lack. There's nothing wrong with the universe for not being able to grasp it. Just by definition, you can't. The moment, the moment you're having an experience, there's something outside of God. By definition, it's impossible for a created being to understand this and to perceive us. The only reason the Jew is able to perceive this is because we have a piece of God inside of us. So it's the piece of God inside of us that really understands us. We have something that, that's... It's not human. It's a piece of Hashem, a piece of God himself. And therefore, that's the only reason why a Jew is ready to martyr himself. A Jew is ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. A Jew is ready to give up everything without any hesitation, without any rhyme or reason, just give up everything for his connection and relationship to God. It has a life of its own. It takes over. And a Jew won't even bow down, even though it's external, superficial. A Jew won't, can't be disconnected from God, even for a moment. And even though he lived a whole a lifestyle that was the antithesis of anything spiritual and holy and godly, but in that moment of truth, all that melts away. And that moment of truth, he becomes like the complete tzaddik. Nothing means anything to him. The only thing that means to him is his relationship to God, and he's ready to die. and He's ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. Not because he loves he loved life more than anything. Life is holier and more precious than anything in the world. But it's simply not an option for a Jew to be disconnected with God. It takes on a life of its own. It takes over the divine essence just emerges in all its beauty. And what is that divine essence inside of us, that pintly, that spark? We're believers, the children of believers. We inherit this holy neshama, this holy spark that comes to us as a result of the union of our parents. We're born with it. It's that knowledge that, that, that we see, that we know that there's nothing else with God. There's no other reality. this is what the Zohar calls the higher level of unity the ultimate level of unity which is how many commentaries explain the question is the very first mitzvah in the Torah is the mitzvah to believe in God Maimonides says the mitzvah, the very first of the Ten Commandments the very first mitzvah in the Torah is to believe in God the question is, how could there be a commandment to believe in God? Firstly, if you don't believe in God, who's commanding you? Exactly. Believe in God. Already assumes you believe in God. Otherwise, who's commanding? Secondly, how could you command someone to believe in God? Command someone to love. I, I do I don't. I, I believe. I believe I don't believe. You command someone to do something. You can't command someone to believe. Either you do or you don't. And if you don't believe, commanding Him is not going to make them believe. And thirdly, do you need a commandment to believe in God? It's so obvious, it's so natural, it's so self-evident. I mean, just open your eyes, unless a person is blind, deaf, and dumb, how can you not believe in God? And if someone told you that uh, Shakespeare was written by a monkey sat at a typewriter, I mean, it's ridiculous, absurd. If someone told you the Empire Building one Sunday morning there was a big bang of a whole bunch of material, and there was a big explosion, and everyone closed their eyes, and before you knew it, there was this Empire Building, perfect, with elevators, and, and everything was down. It, it's so absurd... And and that's nothing in comparison to the complexity of the human body, which is made up of billions of atoms. And we're just beginning to, we haven't even begun to fathom the depth, the infinite depth, of even one organ in the body. We're just scratching the surface. So anyone that could believe that all of this just happened, a big bang, and all of a sudden, just I mean, it's, it's almost insulting. The person doesn't know what a fool he's making of himself. How could you utter such nonsense with a straight face? So you don't even need faith to believe in God. It's common sense, it's logical. You see a building, you know there's a builder, period. You, know, you see a book, you know there's an author. You see a business, you know there's someone to build. You see a country, a system of government, you know there's a founder, there's a George Washington. It just didn't just happen by itself. So anyone that could believe that this world, this infinitely complex world, that only today we're, we're beginning to understand the infinite complexities, all of this has happened on its own. I and mean, as Einstein says, how could you not believe so you don't need a mitzvah to believe in God, a commandment to believe in God. How can you not believe in God? Anyone who has innate intelligence, anyone who's genuinely intelligent, not pseudo-intellectual, but anyone who's genuinely intelligent, how can you not believe in God? I mean, it's, it's absurd not to. So it doesn't, take, it doesn't take faith to believe in God. It's common sense, logical, it's rational. It's... So firstly, do you need a mitzvah to believe in God? You don't need a mitzvah, it's common sense. If you didn't if you didn't need a commandment, how could a commandment help you? Either you believe or you don't believe. And thirdly, who is commanding you in the first place? I mean the mitzvah presumes that you believe in a God who's commanding you, has a right to command you, and the explanation is. The mitzvah is not to believe it is a God. That goes without saying. You don't need a mitzvah to believe in God. It's common sense anyone who has common sense you open your eyes of course you believe in God just like you know you have a soul you've never seen your soul you're more certain of your soul than anything in the world you can see so of course this world also has a soul you don't need, it's common sense you don't need a commandment to believe in God and we already believe in God it's natural it's innate the mitzvah of the ten commandments the very first mitzvah in the Torah is to believe the higher level of unity the level we're discussing here in the Tanya, that the relationship between God and the world is not like the body and the soul. The body and the soul, yes, the soul, the body is completely nullified before the soul. The body is egoless. The body becomes one with the soul, inseparable from the soul. The identity of the body becomes nothing other than the soul. The moment you decide to move your hand, your hand moves automatically. The body is just a part of the soul, merges, becomes one with the soul. But nevertheless, no one will say that the body is nothing in comparison to the soul. The body is also something. The soul is something and the body is something. And the proof is, you see the effect that the body has on the soul. Not only the soul has on the body, but the body has on the soul. If you're cold or you're hot or your body is hurting, in pain, the soul can't function properly. And if you're too much in pain, the soul leaves the body. So you see from the impact that the, in, the body-mind connection, the mind-body connection, the soul, the body are interlinked, interchanged, inter- interconnected, that one affects the other, one impacts the other. So you can't say that the body is nothing in comparison to this. The higher level of unity is, that, and this is the mitzvah to belief, this God that you already believe in every, every religious person believes in God every mystic believes in God you don't have to be Jewish you don't have to be, it's universal anyone with common sense who opens his eyes of course you see God and you sense God it doesn't even, it's not even a question of faith you don't even need faith there if you want to know what blind faith is it's not belief in God it's God's belief in us so that's, that's, that's blind faith but the mitzvah of faith in the Torah is That this God that you believe in, that you know exists, you should believe. And this is the foundation of the Jewish people. This is the very first mitzvah in the Torah, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. This is what Jewish faith is, the faith that we inherit from our parents, from our mothers. We get the Jewish neshama. What makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish neshama. We have this innate, inherent, innate faith within God. That is that we believe that God is not, the world is not even like a body to the soul. Because the soul, there is a body. But to God, there is nothing other than God. Nothing else really exists. All there is, is really God. Even while God is creating the world and speaking and bringing us into existence, creating us and sustaining us with His words and letters, the Hebrew words and letters, nothing really exists but God. Because after God speaks, it's exactly the same like before He speaks. Just like a human being. Before He speaks, where those words and letters that you think with and you speak with, they came from you. Where were they inside of you? You didn't even feel you had them. You don't, even the words didn't feel themselves because they were one with the source. They were swallowed up in the source. They were unified within the source. There was nothing other than the source. The raw experience, the raw intellect, subconscious, the essence of the person. So too with God, even after he speaks, it's exactly like before he speaks. And therefore the very words and letters that creates us and bring, constantly brings us into existence, those very words and letters are in a state, they themselves are in a state of non-being and non-existence. So the very true nature of everything that exists, really, is no ego, non-being, non-existence, all there is is God, being totally unified within the absolute unity of God. That everything is permeated with the essence of God. There is nothing else but God. Everything. There is no space empty of God. This is Jewish faith. This is the treasure that we inherited from our parents. We're all trillionaires. What a treasure to have that awareness, to have that knowledge, to have that truth, that faith. And this is faith because it's, it's something that transcends human comprehension. It transcends even, even spiritual comprehension, even angelic comprehension. The idea that nothing exists, there's not only Einoid Muvade, there's no independent existence with God. But that ain't o uh, did nothing else to exist but God. God, nothing changed, just like God was alone before he created the world. He's alone after he creates the world. Absolutely, identically the same. Alone, absolutely alone. This is, this is mind boggling. This is revolutionary. This is counterintuitive. This is something that no one could possibly come to a conclusion, no one could possibly begin to grasp. But this is the treasure that we inherit the fact that we're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah, Rachel, and Leah. We inherited this holy neshama, this pentaly, this divine spark inside of each and every Jew. And we, we inherited this knowledge, this truth, this reality. And we live our lives accordingly. That's why a Jew is holy. Because his whole being, his core and essence, is truly holy. Not because of anything we've done, because we inherited this neshamah, this holy neshamah. in Sarah Rivka, from our Yiddish and
0: Okay, let's learn inside. Thus God's speech and thought are united with him in absolute union, just like the speech and thought of man before he actually expresses them as speech and thought. Rather, as they are while still in his faculty of wisdom and intellect, or as they exist in a desire or craving that are still in the heart, before they rise from the heart to the brain, there to be meditated upon with the letters of thought. At that point, before one speaks or thinks, the letters of his speech and thought, which evolve from the aforementioned longing and desire, were still in a potential state in the heart, where they were absolutely unified with their source namely the wisdom and intellect in the brain and the longing and desire in the heart. In the case of a mortal, his thought and speech are completely unified with him before he speaks. At that point, the letters which constitute his thought and speech are still telescoped within their source. In the case of the Creator, however, his thought and speech remain unified with him even after he thinks and speaks. They are always within their source, the Omnipresent God, as the Alter Rebbe now concludes. Precisely so, by way of analogy, are God's speech and thought absolutely united with his essence and being, even after his speech has already become materialized in the creation of the worlds, just as it was united with him before the worlds were created. Thus, for God, nothing whatever was changed by the revelation of his creative power in creation. The change wrought by creation exists only with regard to the created beings, who receive their life force from God's word when it proceeds, from concealment, to actualization with the creation of the worlds. For the created beings, the revelation of the creative power contained in God's Word represents the greatest possible change, the passage from non-existence to existence, since they come into being only when the Divine Word begins to actually create worlds, at which time it clothes itself in these worlds to give them life. This process takes place through a gradual descent from level to level, with a higher level referred to as the ilah, the cause, and the lower level, the alul, the effect, and a downward gradation by means of numerous and various contractions, tzim tzumim, that is, a progressive decrease in the intensity of the revealed divine powers. God's word descends and is contracted to the point where the created beings can derive their life force and existence from it without losing their identity. An undimmed revelation of the godly life force would create beings whose identity would be utterly nullified within their life force. It was God's intention that His creations perceive themselves to be separate from Him and that through their own efforts they achieve a spirit of self-nullification vis-à-vis their Creator. To this end, God revealed His creative power only through a series of contractions whose effect the Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain.
1: God created the world And he created the whole system of cause and effect. And that's the way our minds are wired. Our minds are wired to think of cause and effect. What we see, we look at the rule for everything. Everything has to have a reason, a law. What's the law? Law of physics, law of psychology. Everything has to have a law, a reason. And what's the reason behind the reason? And what causes this? Everything we think in terms of cause and effect. And that's our whole frame of reference. We can't even think outside the box. We can only think cause and effect and the original cause an original cause and the original cause. The whole idea of something from nothing, where there is no cause and effect, it's not like cause, cause and effect is logical. It's like the mother gives birth to the baby. The baby was first in the mother's womb and then it emerges. The brain, the mind, an idea gives birth to an emotion. You understand something well, it leads to an emotion. Now they understand it, now I want it. I love it. I'm attracted to it. Or I hate it. I'm afraid of it. I want to run away from it which leads to thought. You think about something you love, which leads to to speech. You speak about things, something you're thinking about, which leads to action. So this is all a logical sequence. It's called seder eshtal It's called cause and effect. One thing leads, leads to the other. So that's our frame of reference. We think in terms of cause and effect. We can't think outside the box. But the truth is that everything in this world is something from nothing. It's not cause and effect. There's no logical connection. How do you get from energy to matter? How do you jump from energy from an atom to a table? It's not logical, it makes no sense. How do you get from pure energy? This table is 99.9% empty. Because if you go into the atom, the atom, everything is made up of atoms. The atom is 99.9% empty. Yet, this doesn't look empty, it looks pretty solid. Because it swirls around and, and it gives us the appearance of solidity. So how do you get from pure energy? No one has ever seen an atom. Not because we don't have a strong enough microscope to see one. It's be it's pure energy. How do you get from pure energy to solid, to matter? It makes no sense, it's not logical. It's not like predictable. It's a logical thing. The mother has a, has a child in a, in a womb and logically she'll give birth to a child. The brain will give birth to an emotion. The emotions will give birth to a thought. The thought will give birth to speech. The speech will give birth to action. That's logical. That's called ila va'olu, like a chain, a chain reaction. One cause leads to the effect, which becomes the cause to the next effect. And it it could be a very long chain of events. You can have a thousand rungs in the chain. But one thing leads to the other. And all of our thinking, that's our frame of reference, from religion to the scientists, everyone is stuck within this frame of reference, cause and effect. That's not Judaism. Judaism, the very foundation of Judaism, is Beresh, Baral, in the beginning, God created something from nothing. It takes us out of the box. It's something from nothing. It's illogical, it's unpredictable. There's no connection. It's, it's a divine miracle. It's only an expression of God's creative ability. It makes no sense. How do you get from here to there? It's like totally unpredictable, totally unprepared. It makes no sense. Illogical. But God had to create the world in such a way that with this frame of reference of cause and effect, illa Allah, because otherwise, if we were to sense that everything is something from nothing, there would be no egos, there would be no world. We would all be one with God. So in order to create a world, an entity, a reality, time, space, concepts, ideas, God had to create this frame of reference. our whole universe exists within this frame of reference of cause and effect rules, laws whether it's mystical law or logical law or psychological law or physical law cause and effect but that whole frame of reference is wrong it's a cover up a very effective cover up because it totally conceals and hides the truth the truth is that we are nothing and existence makes no sense. And it's a miracle. And it's a dynamic miracle. And an ongoing miracle. And God has to constantly create us. If you think the splitting of the sea was a miracle, the splitting of the sea is nothing in comparison to this cup of water. The miracle of this cup of water. This cup of water exists. It's a greater miracle, more profound miracle, and the greatest miracle in the Torah, the splitting of the sea. How do you get from energy to a cup of water? It makes no sense. How do you make such a leap? It's totally illogical, totally irrational. empty, and yet everything is so solid and real. and We don't sense anything. But this is the cover-up. We're wearing blinders. We don't see, we don't hear, we don't sense. And we are living in this frame of reference. But God created it so intentionally to cover up, to enable existence. Otherwise, existence could not exist. There would be no no sense of ego, no sense of independence, no, no sense of separation from God. We would be totally nullified within God. We would sense that we're nothing. All we would notice and pay attention to is the divine energy, the creative miracle. We would be dancing. With every fiber of our being, we would only be singing the praise of Hashem and and experiencing the divine miracle of creation, of existence. So it's a complete cover-up. Yes, we notice that we're alive. Life is a miracle, but we don't notice the, the divine that it's divine. We don't make the divine connection. You know, if it, in a sane world, in the normal world, they would build stadiums in the maternity wards. So after work, people can go watch the miracle of creation, the miracle of life. Instead, people go watch some overgrown babies hitting a, taking a piece of wood and hitting a ball. So this is, this is the illogical world that we live in. not a rational, normal world. It's, it's, it's a cover-up. But this is the symptom that God hid the world, and he hid the truth. And we don't sense the truth. We don't sense the divine. We don't sense the energy. We don't sense the miracle. And everything appears to be so logical and rational, and everything makes sense. And truth is, nothing makes sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. But it has the, deceptively, deceptively, everything makes sense. It's rules and laws Mother nature. Everything has a reason. Everything has a natural reason. And nothing can be further than the truth. But that's the cover. Of God has God concealed himself very well. He's a good hide. He you knows that to hide very well. He plays hide and seek. And he hides very, very well. He hides. You don't see. You don't notice. Everything is natural. Everything seems to be so normal and natural. And if you, th- if you think about it for three and a half seconds, nothing is normal. Nothing is natural. The whole thing makes no sense. The whole thing is a miracle. An ongoing, dynamic, vibrant miracle. And yet it's, it's as if nothing happened. God conceals, oh what's the big deal? It's no big deal. Everything is so natural and so logical and neat. So this is the cover-up. And God created the world in a way of ilu cause and effect and through Simtsum by covering himself up and hiding, concealing himself to enable existence. Otherwise we would there would be no ego. It would be we wouldn't feel a separation from God, we wouldn't feel independent or we would be totally nullified before God.
0: Okay, you want to continue? All the contractions all the contractions constitute a veiling of the divine countenance that is they veil and conceal the face that is the essential aspects of the light and life force that are derived from god's word so that it should not reveal itself with an intense radiance which the lower worlds would be incapable of receiving therefore too because it is thus obscured through tzimtzum the light and life force of god's word that is clothed in them appears to them as if it is something separate from god himself and as though it only issues from Him, just as the speech of a human being issues from Him but then becomes separated from Him. This false perception of the godly life-force as something separate from God is possible only because the life-force is hidden from creation by means of the Tzim tzumim. Yet in regard to God, no concealment or veil hides or obscures anything from Him. To Him, darkness, concealment, and light, revelation, are alike, as it is written, even the darkness does not obscure anything from you. The symptom, the effect of the symptom, is
1: that we perceive God's speech as if it were human speech. When a human being speaks, yes, we were these words and letters that you're thinking with and you're speaking with. We were these words and letters before you spoke. These words and letters were within the person, unified within the person. They were non-entity. They were in a state of non-being and non-existence. But then the person speaks, and then the words have a life of their own. You're communicating to someone that exists outside of you. And they hear hear you, and they absorb it, and they receive it. So the effect of the symptom is that when God speaks, we perceive his speech just like human speech. The difference is when God speaks, he creates someone to speak to. It's his words that create the audience. When we speak, the audience already exists before we speak. There's a whole world out there. And we speak, and they receive our words. God is no one to speak to. There's no one outside of God. When God speaks, he creates an audience. He creates us. A being that feels itself, feels its ego, being egotistical and separate, independent, part, apart from God. So God's speech creates us and creates an audience. So there's a separation between God and us. So yes, we may know that there's a speaker. God is speaking. There's a speaker. But there are words. And there are letters. And the, me- the words have meaning. He's speaking to us. He's communicating to us. So there's somebody to communicate to. There's somebody worth communicating to. So we're an entity. Suddenly we feel like we're, we're, we're something in relationship to God. There's God and there's us. There's a relationship. And there's a connection. So that's the difference. We perceive God's speech just like human speech. But how does God himself perceive his speech? Like we said earlier, God speaks. After he speaks, it's like before he speaks. Just like before he speaks, we were those words and letters unified within God, swallowed up within God. It was nothing else but God. Even after God speaks, the speech hasn't left God. It's still within God. It's still swallowed up in the swords. Nothing exists but God. So for God, there is no symptom. Nothing can hide and conceal God. As he's going to explain, because the symptom also comes from God. Not only is God doing the speaking, God is also doing the hiding. So when you're hiding yourself, you can't really hide yourself. As this is expressed in Jewish law. The person is not where it doesn't lost his yarmulke. And he wants to make a blessing. You have to make a blessing. You need a yarmulke. Kippah. So what does he do? Could you take your hand and put it over your head? Does that count as a kippah, as a covering? No. Why not? Because he can't cover yourself. You can't use your own hand to cover your own head. You can't cover up on yourself. It's like uh, the turtle. The turtle's cover <laughs> is part of the turtle. It's not separate from it. So someone else can put his hands over you. If someone else puts his hands over you, that's a good cover. You can put your hands over someone else's head, but you can't cover up on yourself. So when God is covering up in himself, there's no cover. Who's God, who, he's concealing over himself. You can't conceal yourself. So therefore, from God's point of view... There is no cover. So, just like before the Tsimsum, God is alone. The words are completely swallowed up and unified within the unity of God. Even after the Tsimsum, even after the contraction, nothing changes. From God's point of view, from God's perspective, nothing changes. From our perspective, everything changes. We exist, we sense ourselves, we're here. But from God's point of view, even after he creates us and he conceals and he hides and he creates the veil, God is the veil. He is the creator and he's the veil. So all there is is God. So nothing changed. So the truth is that nothing changed. God speaks. After he speaks, it's like before he speaks. The words never leave him. They're within the source. And they're in a state of non-entity and non-being. So from God's point of view, even after he creates us, while he's creating us at this very moment, we are in a state of non-being. All that is is God. There is nothing else. It's not even like a body to the soul. All there is is God. All there is is there, there is no body. There is nothing. There is no entity. There is nothing. Even after the tzimtum. Even after he conceals himself. Creates him.
0: Continue. This may also be interpreted even the darkness does not obscure because it derives from you. I.e. the veil of Tzimtzum is itself of divine origin and therefore it cannot obscure godliness. For as the Alter Rebbe goes on to say, Only a foreign body can constitute an obstruction. One cannot hide from his own self. For the tzimtzumim and the veils are not things distinct from him, heaven forfend, since nothing is separate from God, but are like the turtle or snail whose garment, that is, its shell, is part of its body. So too the very shell, the process of tzimtzum, that hides godliness is itself godly. It's not like we wear
1: clothes. The clothes are separate from us. You can take on the clothes, you can put on the clothes, you can take off the clothes. The snail, the turtle, the clothes are part of the turtle itself. So it's a part of it. You can't, you can't remove it. It's a part of the, it grows together together with the snail and grows together with the turtle. So too, when God hides, God puts a veil on, so to speak, it's all part of God. To use another analogy, another human analogy, Einstein is trying to Teach his students. Now, there's such a huge gap between Einstein and the students. He's a genius, a world genius. How is he going to communicate with his simple students? I mean, there's no way their mind could even come close to his mind. So what does he do? Einstein has to lower himself to their level. Einstein has to put himself put himself in their shoes, get into their heads, and try to communicate using concepts that they can understand. So he has to bring analogies, he brings examples, illustrations, similes, brings them analogies of foxes and hens and parables that they can relate to, stories that they can understand from their world, their simple world. And he's trying to communicate his his revolutionary insights in language that they can understand. Now, the students, what do they hear? They hear a nice story, a nice parable, a nice illustration, and they can relate to it. They don't see the depth of what Einstein is trying to communicate. They're, they're, their minds are too small to really understand and appreciate what Einstein is truly saying. They understand on their level. What does Einstein see in the same parable? While is giving the parable? He sees a parable, he sees a fox and a hen, he sees an illustration. What does he see? He sees his concept in its brilliance, in its dazzling brilliance, in its depth. Undiminished. He sees in the analogy, what does he see? He sees nothing change. For Einstein, nothing changed. For them, for the students, everything changed. They couldn't possibly receive his dazzling, brilliant insights. It's just too dazzling for them. So they see a simple analogy they can relate to. But even with, but while Einstein is giving these analogies, what does Einstein see in these analogies? He sees the original concept. He doesn't see the parable or the little story or the silly little story he's telling. He sees in that story, he sees that dazzling, brilliant insight. Why? Why why is Einstein able to see in this little parable the whole concept? Because where did this parable come from? Who came up with this parable? Einstein came up with this parable. It came from within him. Who has this brilliant concept? Einstein. So the parable can block, can't possibly screen or act as a veil to screen to diminish this dazzling, brilliant insight. Because it all comes from the same source. The insight comes from, the, from Einstein. And the, the parable, the veil, the cover-up also comes from Einstein. You can't cover up on yourself. So the veil doesn't, can't cover up, doesn't diminish by one iota the brilliance of, of, of the original concept. So Einstein sees in the parable, he sees the whole story, the whole... He sees the moral of the story. He sees the original idea. And the same is with Hashem. This entire world is like a parable. Everything in this world is a parable. It's a parable for Hashem. What do we see? We see a parable. We don't see the moral of the story. We see Wall Street. We see a newspaper. We see a cleaners. We see a, a lawyer, a doctor. We see a whole world. We don't see that everything in this world is really a parable. For the infinite, for God. And we get caught up in the parable. And we relate to the parable. And maybe, hopefully, through the parable, we'll be able to see a little deeper. We'll be able to get a glimpse of something infinite, of something divine, of something godly, of something deeper going on. But this cover up, this veil, this parable is only for us. From God, who's not only the source of the infinite, God is also the source of the parable, of the veil. Therefore, God sees in the veil, in the parable, He sees the infinite light. He sees the divine. There, there's no cover-up. There's no hiding. There's no darkness. To use another analogy, a simple analogy, if you read a Chinese paper, what do, what do you see? You see, you notice the letters. <laughs> That's the first thing you notice. Letters that you can't possibly comprehend. Right? But someone who, the Chinese person who understands Chinese, when he reads a Chinese paper, does he notice letters? No. When you're reading your language, you don't even notice the letters. You're reading, it's not the letters, it's, it's what's behind the letters. You don't even notice the letters. It's the idea behind the letters, what the letters are conveying. You don't, you don't even pay attention. It's, it's as if it's not there. It doesn't, it, you don't... But for someone who doesn't understand what's behind the letters, the letters are very prominent. That's all you see. That's all you notice. Funny shapes, letters he can't read, he can't understand. And, and that's what you notice. So, too, we have two different perspectives from two different sides of the story. We notice the letters. We notice the words. We notice the world. We notice the objects. We notice the whole, the whole world, our reality, our frame of reference, concepts, ideas, past, present, future up, down that's our whole frame of reference that's what we notice numbers, concepts we can't perceive beyond that we can't perceive the infinite something that's beyond that the neshama, the infinite something but from the other side from the inside out from God's point of view time, space, concepts, ideas stock market, money government what are you talking about? it's all it's, all there is is Hashem everything is just a parable a mashal everything is just a parable for the infant, and that's what a God sees. So there's no veil, there's no cover-up. God doesn't even notice. The material doesn't even matter. It doesn't even it's insignificant. All that matters, all that exists, and really, is really what is really God. There's nothing else. So it's two different perspectives. So you can have two different ways of looking at the same thing. From our perspective, the external, the parable is very prominent. And from the other side, it's a completely different story.
0: And you don't even notice. So, for God, there is there's, there's no concealment. Thus it is written, God, He is the Lord, as explained elsewhere. In Hebrew, Hashem, He is Elohim. The four-letter name of God denotes divine revelation and transcendence, while the name Elohim refers to God's power of self-concealment, by which He vests Himself in creation. The equation points out that they are one. Elohim is godly just as is the level of godliness signified by the other name. Thus, Elohim does not act as a veil obscuring God, since it is essentially one with Hashem, the power of revelation. Hashem is Elohim. Hashem's ability to transcend,
1: to project His infinite self. And Hashem Elohim, which is Hashem's ability to hide and to conceal, to cover up in Himself, it's the one and the same. They're inseparable, because they both come from Hashem so it's like Hashem hiding, hiding himself so therefore there is no concealment so Hashem's infinite light is totally revealed and penetrates all reality and therefore there's no space empty of God and there's no place outside of God so we are the words we are the letters which is connected to Elohim through which God creates the world they are within the source within God like before he spoke before, like before God speaks therefore they're unified in the absolute unity of God so everything that exists as a result of these words and letters what are their true nature? their true nature is even after they exist even after God speaks even while God is speaking what is their true nature? their true nature is that they are in a state of non-being and non-existence no ego there's no I there's no ego there's nothing but God all there is is God we're not even like a body to the soul all there is is God Hashem Echad. There's only one reality. Ein Oy. There's nothing but God. You are alone. Before you created the world, you're exactly alone, the same after you created the world. Hashem Malaysian, You see, nothing changed. Absolutely nothing changed. After God speaks, it's exactly like before He speaks. We're all swallowed up. We're all unified within the absolute unity of God. And that's our true nature. That is our state of true state of being. We don't perceive it. But it doesn't change the reality. Just because we don't perceive it, doesn't change the reality. The reality is the way God sees. It. That's the truth. From God's perspective. That's the true. That's the truth. And the truth is, we are in a state of non-being. Okay. The last paragraph.
0: Therefore, in His presence, all else is of absolutely no account. Since God is not affected by the tsimtsumim, which make it possible for a created being to feel separate from Him, He perceives all the creations brought into being by His Word as being still within their source, himself. There they are in a state of absolute nullification. From his perspective, they are still non-entities, and the fact of their creation in no way detracts from his absolute unity. He is one alone after creation, just as he was before creation. Okay, this in the previous
1: chapter, one of the deepest chapters in the Tanya. (laughs) You know, it takes a lifetime. Thank God it means we'll live a very long try to truly understand this and grasp this and truly appreciate it and be inspired by it and, you know, apply it personally. And, uh, but this is really the foundation of Hasidus. It's the foundation of the whole Hasidic philosophy. And this really gives a Jew the strength. Where does a Jew get the strength? Not only to maintain his dignity and maintain his strength, his inner strength. When 99% of the world... Opposed the Jew and everything he everything he stood for. Where did the Jew? Are we so stubborn that we don't care what anyone thinks? That the whole world ridiculed and laughed, and and yet we stuck to our guns and we maintained our principles, our morals, our ethics, our convictions, ready to give up, our sacrifice, our lives, for our principles, for our beliefs, our faith. But this is the foundation, because when you realize. That the world, from God's point of view, from the ultimate point of view, it's like, it's like a non-being. Our true state is a state of non-being, non-existence, non-entity. So then there's nothing but God. So only 99% of the world? We only play for an audience of one. <laughs> there's only one. Hashem Echad. There's only one reality. So nothing else really exists. So Plato is laughing. So, Hashem so, Echad. There's only one existence. only one reality. Nothing else exists. So the angels don't appreciate it. So nothing else exists. There's nothing but God. God is alone. There's nothing else. There's no one else and there's nothing else. And therefore, when it comes to any matter of Torah, even one iota of Torah, there's no force in the universe. All the forces in the universe together can't get the Jew to budge one iota to go against this Torah. To compromise even one iota. That's not popular. In other words, nothing exists with God. There's only one reality, period. There is nothing else. Ultimately, there is nothing else. And that's, that's the marriage of the Jew and God. That's what we have from the inside out. And no one can take that away from us. And that's what gives us strength. That's our wellspring, that's our secret. That's our fountain, our fountain of youth that keeps us youthful and vibrant and vigorous and fresh while all the mighty emperor, empires are long gone and forgotten. And yet the Jew never left the front page of history, the eternal people. Because this is a truth, this is our fountain of youth, this is a truth, this is the core truth of all. There's nothing but God. And it's not something that we die for, it's something we live for. That's how we live our life. A Jew's life is about bringing the unity of God, permeating every facet of existence, every force, every aspect of existence, permeating it with the awareness that there's nothing but God. By doing a mitzvah, taking your portion of the world, taking a physical object and doing a mitzvah sanctifying it, making it holy, bringing holiness into the world, bringing godliness into this world, making our lives, our homes, our deeds, our actions, our thought, filling our lives, our businesses, our making every part of our life, filling it with holiness, with godliness. This is our fountain of youth. This is our secret. This is the essence of the truth. This is the eternity within the truth, the divine spark within the truth. It's indestructible. And that's the holy spark within each and every Jew. A Jew, is a Jew is a Jew. That's the core, that's the essence. That's why the Jews are the chosen people. And that's why Israel is the holy land. The Torah is the holy Torah. And God is holy. And we try to bring that holiness into this world by doing the Torah and doing the mitzvah, studying the Torah and doing the mitzvah. By teaching the entire world, six billion people, to become righteous Gentiles. By teaching six billion people to become Noahites, Living up to their divine potential. Every human being is created in the image of God. By every human being plugging in to Sinai, plugging into the Torah, plugging into the Jewish people, to Moses. By filling their seven Noahide laws, which is their ten commandments with hundreds of details, which are the basic moral, ethical, and spiritual principles for all mankind, then every human being has the ability, without becoming Jewish, every human being has the ability to plug in to this eternal truth, to plug in to eternity, to plug in to connect with ultimate reality by fulfilling their holy mission in this world, being a righteous Gentile, leading a moral, ethical life filled with integrity, A life filled with morality, ethics, and spirituality spirituality. to be continued next week.